Welcome to the Abbott Circle podcast. I'm Father Ambrose Christ, and I'm the novice master here at St. Michael's Abbey. We hope that you enjoy the following recording. To learn more about the Norbertines, visit theabbotcircle.com. God bless you. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our webinar, and welcome to St. Michael's Abbey. And I'd like to introduce to you Father Sebastian Walsh, my confrere, and he's going to be presenting our webinar today. And Father Sebastian will begin us with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us, us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom and mother of good counsel, pray, pray for, for us. us. Our holy guardian angels and patron saints, pray, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's delightful to be here with all of you. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of people who are signed up, some of whom are already members of the Abbott Circle, others who are new, and so welcome to everyone if it's your first time. I hope you enjoy this, uh, this experience of a webinar with St. Michael's Abbey and the Abbott Circle. And, and the topic that I was asked to speak about is something very close to all of our hearts, and that's the question about, uh, will I go to heaven, and how, how can I be sure that I'm going to be able to make it to heaven? So that's a question that we all have. And to begin to answer this question, we have to really understand what do we mean by heaven? And, and then we'll have some idea about how we're supposed to get there, right? Um, heaven isn't just kind of a state of just feeling generally content and, you know, like my life is going well and I've got, um, you know, my family's good and whatever else, that's heaven. No, heaven is perfect happiness. It's perfect happiness. And so it's the, it's the deepest longing of the human heart. All of us want to be happy. And not only that, we want to be perfectly happy. And it's only when we're perfectly happy that we will find ourselves in heaven. So then the question is, well, what is perfect happiness for us? One thing we know is this, that no one wants to be happy just for a time. If you're going to be perfectly happy, you're going to be happy forever. And we also know, without any revelation, without any faith, every, every atheist knows this, we know that this life is going to come to an end, right? We, we don't know um, what's on the other end without some kind of faith or some kind of revelation. And, and therefore, we know that perfect happiness will never come in this life. If there's going to be perfect happiness, it'll have to come in the next life. We also know that we have this natural desire um, to have all of our desires fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled. And among the deepest desires that we have is a desire to know, the desire to know truth, the desire to know the causes of things. And so we actually have implanted in our nature the desire to understand the very first cause of all reality, and that's God. We want to see him, as the scriptures say, face to face. That's our longing, our desire, and that's ultimately what heaven will consist in, in the perfect vision of God. In other words, heaven is being happy as God is happy. Now that's amazing. And if we could only be happy that way, then surely all our desires would be fulfilled and 
that would be the most satisfying reality. You can imagine yourself living forever, for all eternity, as long as you are happy with God's own happiness. So that's what we mean by heaven. Now, the next question is, how do I get there? And the simple answer is, with help. There's no chance of getting there by yourself. You have to get there with help. You have a better chance of jumping to the moon by yourself than you have of getting to heaven by yourself. Because we just don't have the natural ability to be happy as God is happy. We don't have the natural capacity within us to, um, to see God face to face, to know as God knows, to love as God loves. And, um, and therefore, the only way we're going to be happy is if God helps us. If God intervenes into our lives, and then he lifts us up, raises us up to his level of perfection and his level of joy. And um, so that's the first short answer to the question. We get to heaven with God's help. The second part of that answer is this. We have to be helped the way God wants to help us, not the way we want God to help us. We've all had that experience. We're trying to help someone, and they want to be helped in a different way, right? They, they're just like, well, no, um, give me money right now. No, I'm going to give you food and clothing. No, I want money, right? People want to be helped in one way, but then God, in fact, wants to help in a way that's actually good for them. Um, we see that a lot with parents and children, right? The children want to be helped in one way. The parents are like, no, I'm going to help you this way. So we have to have the humility to realize, okay, if we're going to get to heaven, not only do we need God's help, we also need to accept in all humility the help God gives us in the way that God wants to give it. And that presupposes, therefore, some kind of revelation. God intervening into history and saying, look, I've come to save you. I've come to help you. Here are the determinate means that I have established so that you can get to heaven. And we as Catholics believe very firmly that God became man in the man Jesus Christ. He established a church. And that church has given us all the means necessary in order to be saved. Everything that we need in order to get to heaven. And not just what we need, superabundantly everything that we need. It's as if God gives us way more than we actually need in order to get to heaven. So that's, that gives us some confidence. Huh? We, should, we should realize that God actually loves us more than we love ourselves. He wants us to get to heaven more than we want to get to heaven. That's an amazing statement. And so he has super abundantly provided us with all the means necessary in order to have that perfect happiness, which is his own happiness. What are those means? What are the, the concrete means that God has established for us um, to finally make it to heaven? The first thing is faith. We have to believe in what God has taught us, what God has revealed. And that means, of course, as Catholics, we believe in the sacred scriptures and what Christ has taught through his apostles and what the church teaches in a definitive way, right? So um, Jesus came into the world. He taught certain things. He handed on that teaching to the body of the apostles, and he established a church, which, as St. Paul says in the scriptures, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And he didn't want to leave us with just simply no way of knowing exactly what he taught. So he gave the gift of infallibility to his church so that we would always know with accuracy what Jesus had taught. 
those determinant means everything necessary for salvation. So we have to have faith, faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the, the church which he himself has founded. The second thing that we need to do is we need to pray. St. Teresa of Avila said, he who prays will be saved. It's very simple. And, and you will sooner um, give up your sin than your salvation if you continuously and perseveringly pray. Jesus says, pray always, huh? not just when you feel like it. Always we should pray. Even if we feel rejected by God, we should pray. Jesus told a parable about that. He told the parable about after the Our Father in St. Luke's Gospel, he told us about a man who um, at midnight, he goes to a friend and he asks for three loaves of bread. And from inside of the house, he hears his friend say, I, I cannot rise and give you anything. Go away. The doors are locked. My children are in bed with me. And therefore, I cannot give you anything. That parable is basically about the, the soul at midnight in the darkest times of their lives. Those times when they feel like, like God has abandoned them. And then they go and they ask God for help. And it sounds like from within, from within heaven, they hear the voice of God saying, go away. I'm not going to give you anything. The door to heaven is locked. And my children are asleep in bed with me. Don't even ask for the intercession of the saints. Right? But Jesus tells us, no, even if he will not rise and give them anything because of their friendship, nevertheless, because of his perseverance, he will give him as much as he needs. So God wants us to persevere in prayer. Not everyone who loves God will be saved at some point in their life. But everyone who perseveres in seeking to love God eventually will be saved. Um, so we don't count our own goodness. We don't depend on the fact that we're friends of God when we pray. Because we don't hope for, when we pray, for things that are proportionate or commensurate with our goodness. But rather we hope in God's goodness when we pray. So we have to pray and we have to pray perseveringly. And those times when it's difficult, we have to remember it's a command from the Lord to pray always. The next thing that we have to do is that we have to use the sacraments. God has established very easy means. He wants to make it so easy for us to be saved. So he gives us these beautiful things. They're sacraments. They're so easy. Even a child can use them. They're really great. Okay. So we have, of course, baptism, the first of the sacraments. And that sacrament allows us or is the opening the heavenly portal by which we can get grace to all the other sacraments. Once we're baptized, we have the supernatural ability to receive grace through all the other sacraments. There's seven total, and the first is baptism. And then God gives us the gift of confirmation um, to strengthen us. That's sort of like making us um, grown up in the faith. It gives us uh, additional supernatural abilities to beget the faith in others. Huh? And then he gives us, most importantly of all the sacraments, the Eucharist. He gives us his own body, blood, soul, and divinity under the appearance of bread and wine in the most holy sacrament of the altar. And therefore, through the Eucharist more than any other sacrament, we have union with God. Jesus points to that in John chapter 6 when he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life within him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't that beautiful? From the, the sacrament of the Eucharist has the life of God within it. Just as a living father has life and I have life from him, says Jesus. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
will have life because of me. So the very life and happiness of God come to us through the Eucharist more than any other sacrament. Now, Jesus knows that we're weak and he knows that we fail. And therefore he's also giving us medicine, sacraments that are medicine. And one of these sacraments is a sacrament of confession or also known as reconciliation or penance. And by means of that sacrament, if we fall away from God's grace, if we commit a serious sin, God always receives us back into his embrace. You know that when you go to confession, you bring more joy to the heart of Jesus by making that one confession than you caused him sorrow by committing all those sins. Even if it's a whole lifetime of sin, Jesus never rejects us. Jesus said on one occasion in John chapter 6 again, I will not reject anyone who comes to me. No one. So we have this beautiful and easy sacrament. We go, we confess our sins to the priest who stands there in the place of Jesus and acts in the person of Christ. And we receive absolution, forgiveness from our sins. And then finally, we have the sacrament of anointing of the sick for at the very end of our life. God wants us to have everything necessary for our journey into heaven to the next life. And therefore, he gives us also this very beautiful sacrament, which is the sacrament of anointing of the sick, which not only forgives our sins, but also removes all the sinful inclinations within our soul that have built up over a lifetime of failure. So here we have these beautiful sacraments. Then we add to those sacraments not only the ones I've mentioned, namely baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, um, the sacrament of confession, the sacrament of anointing of the sick or extra unction. We also add to those two vocational sacraments. One, marriage for those who are um, united in marriage and bringing forth new progeny for the church physically. Um, they are an, a sign of the union of Christ and his church. And that's a great help along the way as we journey to heaven together as a loving married couple. And also holy orders, the priesthood, by which God governs his church and then he also provides supernatural progeny for the church, spiritual progeny, and he feeds us with the bread of life through the Eucharist, which comes only through the hands of the priest. So those are the seven sacraments, and if we make liberal use of them, we use them often, and we use them devoutly and fervently, then we can be sure we'll have not only everything necessary to get to heaven, but even much more than is necessary. We'll even have enough grace to help others get to heaven if we use the sacraments really well and really fervently. Huh? All right, what's the last thing we have to do? The last thing is Jesus tells us, the one who really loves me is the one who keeps my commandments. The commandments are the sine qua non, without which not, right? That if we, if we don't follow the commandments, it means we don't really love Jesus. And that's what we have to do. We have to really love Jesus, not the way we feel he should be loved, but the way he wants to be loved. You know, I see this in married couples, okay? Sometimes a married couple comes to me for, they have difficulties or whatever in their marriage. And, they, and so I sit them down together and we talk about it. And then I, I, I ask one of them to leave and the other one just tells me their part. And then the other one comes and tells me their part. So it goes like this often. It says, you know, the, the, the wife comes in and she says, I love my husband with all my heart, and he doesn't love me back. And she leaves, and then the husband comes in. I love my wife with all my heart, and she doesn't love me back. You know, both of them are swearing on a stack of Bibles that they are the ones who are really loving, and they're not being loved in return. And I believe both of them. Do you know what's really happening there? 
What's happening is they're loving, but in a way the other one can't feel it or experience it. And we need to love Jesus the way he wants to be loved. Not the way we want to love him. The way he wants to be loved. And he shows us that by means of the commandments. The commandments, I like to say, they're not a bunch of rules and thou shalt nots and, and restrictions on our freedom. They're quite the opposite. Commandments are the instructions for the human heart on how to unlock the power of the human heart to love God. Our hearts are weak. We don't know how to love well. And therefore, what we need to do in order to love well is we need to follow the commandments, which is the instruction manual for the human heart. The commandments and then also the Beatitudes, I like to say. They're the instruction manual for the human heart that tells us how does it work? How do I, what buttons do I push to allow me to love perfectly? And the answer is found in those commandments, right? If you were to have a very sophisticated machine, like a very sophisticated VCR or some other apparatus, you would certainly want to have the instruction manual if you wanted to unlock the full ability of that very complicated and, and uh, valuable machine. Well, in the same way God has given to us through his commandments, the instruction manual for the human heart that allows us to love with the full power that he wants us to love. And so if we do that, if we have faith, if we pray perseveringly and devoutly, if we make use of the sacraments, and if we follow the commandments, there is no possibility that we will not be saved. In fact, we will be so saved that we will find ourselves um, in heaven with a reward far beyond any desire that we might have for happiness. So there is our little four-step program, faith, prayer, sacraments, commandments, the four steps on the ladder that take us to heaven. So I hope that helps. And now I think it's time to answer some questions. Well, thank you, Father Sebastian. That was really inspiring, really clear. And I, I excuse me, I'm kicking around all our gear here. We have a lot of questions coming Great. in. So right. let's just dive right in, okay? The, um, these are hard questions, some of them. All right, I'll do my best. Where is heaven, Father Sebastian? Where is heaven? Okay. Now, um, a lot of people, they like, to, these days, we have this kind of, you know, weird, you know, platonic idea of like heaven is just a state of being, right? And, and true enough, as I described heaven, fundamentally, essentially, heaven consists in this, this experience of perfect happiness, right? So Jesus says the kingdom of God is within us, right? So where we'll find heaven, is, of course, more than anywhere else is within our own souls, our souls being united with God and experiencing within ourselves the knowledge and the love of God, the very happiness of God within ourselves, okay? So theoretically, it could be possible that heaven could happen anywhere. Jesus, while he walked on the earth, was experiencing heaven while he walked on the earth. At one point in the Gospel of John, he says, he speaks about the Son of Man who is in heaven. He says already in heaven because he was experiencing the beatific vision while he walked around on earth. So that's the first meaning we mean is that interior uh, experience of the life of God, the very uh, perfect vision of God within our souls. But heaven is also a place. And we know that because we believe that Jesus was assumed bodily into heaven. We also believe as a dogma of the faith that his 
a mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, has been assumed bodily to heaven. We can piously believe, and we hope one day will be defined by the church that St. Joseph was assumed bodily into heaven. And so we know that there are bodies in heaven. Now, we don't know what place that is. The fathers and doctors of the church, after examining scripture carefully, they say, well, it's outside of the known universe. It's not in this defectible creation. It's something outside. Huh? And since a body which has been resurrected and transformed by the resurrection is capable of traveling at the speed of thought, there's no difficulty with distance or anything like that. If it was a, a hundred billion light years or something like that, wherever heaven is, there is a physical place that one day will be heaven. And then we know at, by the scriptures, we know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, that this whole created realm that we live in now will be transformed at the very end of time, at the coming of Christ at the end of the world. And then that will become in some way part of the, the place that we call heaven. So there will be a place, but we know it's outside of the visible universe at this point, as far as the place. But primarily it's that interior experience within the soul. Thank you, Father Sebastian. While we're talking about the four last things, these places, heaven, and, and so forth, a number of questions have come in about purgatory. So I want to just sort of tee this up a little bit um, because several of the, the viewers are hoping that you'll say some words about purgatory. First of all, where do we find that in the scriptures? That's just kind of yes. apologetic. Then um, is it wrong for us or even sinful for us just to kind of hope that we can get to purgatory sort of slip in by the back door mm. because uh uh you know i keep sinning mm. and i i fear that i can't get to heaven mm -hmm. because i experience in my own life that i keep uh being dragged down by sin so would it be wrong for me i'm you know sort of rephrasing what some of the questions sound like um to just hope for heavens or hope for purgatory instead of heaven. low, as they say, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me answer the first question first about where do we find this in scripture, okay? Um, the most direct passage in scripture that speaks about purgatory is actually in a part of the Bible which is not shared in common by Catholics and Protestants, and that's in, in the, the Maccabees. Huh? And in there, it, it mentions specifically that at one point there was a battle. And after the battle, they went to, um, to find the dead, to gather the dead, and they found that every single one of the slain on the side of the um, Israelites had a little idol that was sacred to some god. And, and, um, and while it wasn't that they were worshiping them as if they were the only true god or something like that, they were doing it as a kind of a good luck charm. And so it was a venial sin, we would say in Catholic lingo, that they were, they were using a good luck charm, they thought. Huh? And so uh, then it became apparent, well, this is the reason why that they, they weren't able to survive in the battle. And so what happens is that Judas Maccabeus, what he does is he takes up a collection uh, among all the living soldiers and he sends it to Jerusalem for an expiatory sacrifice. And then it says very specifically there, in thinking this, he thought very well, for if there were no resurrection of the dead, it would have been useless to pray for them in death. So very clearly, there must be a state after death where there are those who need prayer, who are in need of prayer after death. And that's what we would call purgatory. It's a place of purgation and where we make satisfaction for the sins that we've done in our life. Huh? It's a, a place of purifying. There's another place that Protestants and Catholics do share. And I, and I wanna uh, mention this because a lot of um, 
Catholics and Protestants are unaware of this passage. There's a passage in Exodus where it specifically says that the people of Israel, after they got to the promised land, they were afraid to go in. And then they had to wander the desert for 40 years. And then eventually they went in and they entered the promised land. Well, that larger context of Exodus, Exodus in its spiritual sense, signifies a journey of an individual soul from bondage to sin and the devil to entrance into heaven. Let me take you through that. At the beginning, the people are in bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. But then God sends Moses, who afflicts the Egyptians with 10 plagues. After the last of the plagues, they're allowed to go free, but they're still pursued by Pharaoh and his troops. And they get to the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea, and the troops of Pharaoh are destroyed. They go through the desert. They arrive at the promised land, but they're afraid to enter in. And, and so therefore, they have to go back and wander the desert for 40 years. During that time, all the adults who were afraid to go in, they all died off. The only adults that survived were three, Moses and Joshua and Caleb, all three of whom really wanted to go and enter the promised land. And then the rest of them died during the journey. And then they entered in, kind of purified into the promised land. Well, look at that. That's the journey of an individual soul. Pharaoh obviously represents Satan and Egypt, the place of bondage to sin. God sends the Ten Commandments, Moses with the Ten Plagues, in order to free us, first of all, from our dominion to the devil. But it doesn't definitively free us because we have to pass through the Red Sea, which signifies baptism. Remember I told you, you need commandments and baptism, right? And the sacraments. And so they go through the journey of this life. And when they get to the promised land, that's heaven. If they're not ready, if out of fear, they're not yet perfect, what has to happen? They have to wander for 40 years in the desert. Now, in the scriptures, the number 40 always has the same significance. It means a time of cleansing or purification. We see, for example, that the flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights, and the earth was cleansed of those who were sinful on the face of the earth. And we see that Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and it's a time of purification for him. And therefore, um, after that, the people of Israel entered the promised land. Well, that signifies, of course, the time in purgatory, because they already went to the promised land, which signifies heaven. They turned back. They had to wait for a while till they were purified, and then they entered into the promised land definitively and took possession. So there's another passage that Protestants and Catholics share in common that points to the existence of purgatory. There's also a, an oblique reference in St. Paul where he says that those who, um, who don't build perfectly their, uh, upon their, their faith, they don't build um, up their spiritual life perfectly, they will be saved, but as one fleeing through fire is what St. Paul says. Uh, that seems to be an allusion to, to Lot, who gets out of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, as the flames are coming down. Huh? So he's not, um, he, he has a, a waylay station. Lot is on his way out, and he has this little place where he has to stay before he's, um, he enters into the promised land as well. So, um, so there you go. Those are a few scriptural references that speak about purgatory. Another way we can see purgatory is just from the fact that um, we know that God is just. We know that sin, therefore, will be punished. We also know that not all sins deserve eternal death. St. John says, for example, not all sins are um, deadly, right? And we also know that you have to be perfect to get into heaven. So what do you do? 
you have all these people who are not perfect, but not guilty of very grave or deadly sins, and they're not yet perfect, and God is just, and therefore there has to be at some point after this life some kind of purification or justice done for those souls. And therefore we can also reason to it from more universal moral principles which are found throughout all of scripture. The ones that I just mentioned, that God is just, that punishment is, is, is deserved for sin, not all sin deserves death and so forth. So those are reasons or arguments for the existence of purgatory. All right, um, the next question, and that was that about was... aiming low, right? Yes. Okay, so look, um, the, because of original sin, the law of our spiritual life is like the law of gravity. Okay, what does that mean? What that means is that if I aim up there, what's going to happen? Because of gravity, I'm going to have this constant pull downwards on me, right? So if I'm aiming for, a, you know, something in a tree and I throw a rock at it, I have to aim a little higher than the thing on the tree because otherwise it'll, um, it'll go further down and I'll miss it. So if I'm aiming low for purgatory, then what's likely to happen, I might go a little lower and that's hell. We don't want to go there. So, but if you aim high and you aim not only for heaven, but like a high place in heaven, well, then you might, you know, miss a little low, but then end up getting straight into heaven, right? Or even if you're aiming for a low place in heaven, you might end up in purgatory or something like that. So we want to, because of that tendency of original sin that kind of pulls us down, we certainly, God doesn't want us to go to purgatory. He actually is more pained at us going to purgatory than we are going to purgatory. So why do that to Jesus? When Jesus, as I said already in the opening part of, of this talk, he not only gave us what's barely necessary to get to heaven, he gave us what's super abundantly necessary to get to heaven. You know, most of us, I'll speak for myself, I know that I waste at least 99% of the graces that God gives me, okay? That's the truth, I speak for myself, I don't know about Father Ambrose. Father well, Ambrose tells me that he, he probably takes all of my 99% that I lose and he takes it. So, um, so that's why Father Ambrose is so good. But the, um, <laughs> the, um, but the truth of the matter is that, that thank goodness that God gives us so much more than we need because we waste so many graces. But nevertheless, if we were to take advantage of all the graces that God gave us, we would not only make it to heaven, we get to a very high place in heaven. So that's what we have to do. That has to be our attitude. So, so um, the, the questions could go in one of a couple of directions here, but since you mentioned this, Father Sebastian, about the graces super abundantly given to us, and um, okay, two parts to this question. One, with the superabundance of grace, the more we cooperate, does that, you seem to indicate that, that means we have a higher place in heaven. Mm -hmm. Does that mean we're seeing more of God or mm -hmm. somehow leads to the vision? is greater for that soul? That's the first part. Okay. Second part of the question, how is it you said that we can um, help each other get to heaven? Mm. Is this business of grace? And uh, it, is that what you're talking about? How is it that, that someone who's striving for heaven can bring other souls to heaven? Mm. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. So the first question, are there different degrees of glory in heaven and different ways in which we can see God. Okay. The answer is yes. The scriptures say very clearly, St. Paul actually refers to a passage which says, star differs from star in glory. And he's referring to the fact that different souls have different degrees of glory in heaven. That's the passage that uh, refers to that. So for sure, there are different levels in heaven. Okay. And, um, and if you stop and think about it, that makes sense. 
because um, God wants to distribute his gifts differently to each person, right? Each person should have a different gift because no one creature can adequately reflect all of God's goodness. So what does he do? He gives one gift to one, another to another. He gives one the gift of religious life, another the gift of married life, and whatever other gifts that he gives. And in that way, um, by distributing his gifts on all of creation and the different creatures that he has made, more perfectly does the whole reflect his glory and his goodness than any single individual. So we expect that is also the case in heaven. There'll be different glories, and each one will have something unique and irreplaceable that will add to or in some way reflect the glory of God that no one else does. So every soul in heaven will be absolutely essential, but nevertheless, there'll be some with a higher degree of heaven and a, a higher degree of glory and a lower degree of glory, okay? There'll always be that kind of order that's in heaven. And no one will be envious of anyone else, everyone, because everyone will love each other as they love themselves. And so when they see the glory that someone else has, they'll say to themselves, oh, I love you just as much as I love myself, and therefore I'm just as happy that you have that degree of glory as if I had it. So there'll be no envy in heaven, right? And we'll all feel completely satisfied and full. I think it was St. Teresa of Lisieux who said, it's like, I've got a small cup and it's completely full. I've got a large cup, it's completely full. We'll all have our desires completely fulfilled, even if we'll have a different participation of the beatific vision of God's happiness. Now, um, how does that work? Is it that we'll see, uh, some people will see more of God than the other? Not exactly. In fact, all of us will see all of God's essence. That's true. We'll see, we'll see all of God. We'll see the whole God, but we won't see him wholly, meaning that we won't see him to the degree that he's seeable. Um, each one will have a different degree. It's a little bit like this. I can look at God, and I've got 20-20 vision, and then I can look at God, and I've got 20-10 vision, really clear vision, and I can see more and more distinctly and clearly. In both cases, I'm seeing God, the whole God, but in each case, I'm seeing, in one case, I'm seeing him more clearly than I'm seeing him in another. And therefore, that's the difference in glory, that those with a higher degree of glory are seeing more clearly the goodness and mercy of God in a way that those with a lesser degree of glory don't see. Nevertheless, they're both perfectly satisfied insofar as they see all of God. So that's how those things differ in glory. Now, um, the second question, how do we help one another get to heaven? Now, this is a very interesting question. Um, if I had to say, theologically, what is the fundamental difference or distinction between Catholics and Protestants? What is it that, if you had to say, like, what divides us um, theologically? Um, you could say, well, Catholics believe in the primacy of the Pope and, um, and uh, Protestants don't or something like that. But that would be kind of a superficial answer because it's not telling you exactly why we have disagreements or we have a fundamental, fundamentally different approach to seeing revelation. And if you had to say why, I think the answer is this. Catholics believe that God ordinarily prefers to use creatures and, and especially other human beings as instruments to communicate his greatest gifts of grace and salvation. Whereas Protestants believe that God does not do that, that he does, he acts with each soul individually and directly, but not through any other creature. So to give some examples, Catholics believe that the sacraments like baptism are actually causing grace in your soul. 
It's not just that you agree to undergo baptism and then God directly gives the grace to your soul because you, you did this symbolic outward act. We actually think that God causes the grace through the water of baptism, as St. Peter says, you have been saved by the baptismal bath, right? Um, we believe as Catholics that um, our sins are forgiven ordinarily through the mediation of a priest, right? We believe in the intercession of the saints. We believe in a church with a hierarchy and that God's graces of truth and, and uh, grace and salvation are all communicated through the mediation of other persons in the church. And so this difference fundamentally accounts for the, for the way in which Catholics and Protestants um, look at the scriptures and look at divine revelation. Um, why do I think that the Catholic approach is, is more in keeping with God's goodness? Well, for one, as St. Thomas points out, um, God is so good that he wants us to be as much like him as we can be. But God is a cause of grace and salvation. Therefore, he wants us also to be causes of grace and salvation. We're more like him. And if every father wants his children to be as, as perfect as they can be. Another reason, and this might even be a more profound reason, is this. When we are saved, God willing, we're, we, you know, one day we won't be on Zoom or internet or we'll be able to see each other face to face and we'll be direct, directly in contact with each other. When we're saved and we see what a great thing salvation is, um, we will be so grateful for the gift of salvation, so grateful. And not only will we be grateful to God, we'll also be grateful to one another. We'll be able to look one another in the eye and say, thank you. If it had not been for you, I would not have been saved. So we'll look our mother and our father in the eye and we'll say, thank you. If it had not been for you, I would not have been saved. Our friend who taught us uh, about the, the teachings of the church, someone who made prayers and sacrifices for us, the priest who forgave our sins, the person who baptized us, we, we'll be able to look at each of those people and say, thank you. If it had not been for you, I would not have been saved. And we won't love God less because we'll see that all the grace originated from him but we will love one another more because we'll see that it also came through one another. And what father does not want his children to love one another as much as possible? When I was a little boy, my dad, who was very, very generous with the poor, when we would drive somewhere, my dad, if he saw a, a homeless man on the other side of the street, my dad would make a U-turn. And you know what he did? He didn't get out of the car and give the man money. He gave me or my brother or both of us money. He said, I want you to give that money to that, to that homeless person. And in that way, he was teaching us a lesson. First of all, he wanted us to have, in, in some limited way, a participation in his generosity to be real causes in some way. But I think he also wanted that homeless person to look at us and to thank us as well, right? So I, I learned that lesson from my dad too. So in any case, um, those are some very powerful reasons. And when we read the scriptures, I think that's what you find. God ordinarily prefers to communicate his greatest gifts of grace and salvation through one another. That's why St. Paul can say in Colossians 1.24, I fill up in my own body what is lacking to the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So we can really, by our prayers, by our sacrifices, by our teaching, by administering the sacraments, there's so many ways that we can help one another grow in grace and to be saved.
Thank you, Father Sebastian. And I want to just interject just for a moment. A lot of people are writing in about how to make a good confession, oh, good. about the sacrament of confession, all that. We're, we're going to have a whole other webinar, friends, about how to make a good confession and zeroing in on that sacrament. There are so many questions about that. And of course, that's an essential part of what we're talking about here this morning. So let's just bracket that off for another webinar. And I want to um, circle back, Father Sebastian, to uh, we see from everything you've said this morning about the real, the very important instrumentality, causally speaking, of the sacraments of the church, baptism and so forth, the sacraments of our holy Catholic faith. What about those people who don't enjoy those? What about non-believers? What yes. about um, non-Catholics? Yes. What about um, Catholics who have stepped away from the practice of the sacraments, who have walked away from their holy faith? Yes. Now, what about... So how can we um, understand them and these people, all of these many people, and the possibility of their reaching heaven? Yes, very good. Okay, so um, first of all, we make a distinction between those who have never had the gospel ever preached to them in any way and who have no access to those sacraments through no fault of their own. Huh? Um, when we look at that, of course, God only demands of us what's possible. And so that's why... Um, there's some of the steps on the ladder that I told you about. Uh, prayer, faith to the degree that it's possible, keeping the commandments as well as you can, right? Uh, St. Paul says that the commandments of the Gentiles who act righteously are written on their hearts, right? And so in those cases, God won't demand the impossible. Um, basically, what, what he'll do is um, he'll look at each person and say, okay, did you do everything that you could on your part? Now, um, some of the fathers and doctors of the church, what they say is that ordinarily what will happen if someone really does what they can on their part, they've never had the gospel preached to them, God will sense like an angel to them. And we have an example of that in Acts chapter 10. We find that Cornelius is a just man. He's a centurion. And he's really trying his best to follow God. And he's praying. And during his prayer, an angel comes to him and says, he sends him to Peter. He says, go and be baptized by him. And, and so he gets the sacrament because an angel came and preached to him. Isn't that beautiful? Right? And so there might be many people who, in some way, shape, or form, God is actually reaching in a hidden way. And we don't make any judgments about the salvation of anyone. It's not our job to determine who has been saved and who has not. God makes that judgment. But we do know that God is merciful. We know that God loves every one of his children. Um, unimaginably and loves them more than we do and therefore we know that god is doing everything he can in his power in order to bring salvation for everyone even for those who don't have easy access or any access to the sacraments so we know god can act outside the sacramental order if he needs to though normally what he would do is he would in the example i told you he might send an angel and bring someone to the sacraments that way okay so that's the first point but what about those who know about the gospel? Now, then those can be divided into two parts. One are those who were preached the gospel, but falsely. In other words, they did never really got the, the true gospel. They got an adulterated version of it that wasn't really the gospel. And it's not at all surprising in those cases that people like that should, have, should not follow the church. So years ago, I went with a friend of mine who's a priest in, in North Carolina. For the Diocese of Raleigh, North Carolina, we went to do a sick call of, a, of an elderly woman in the, um, a nursing home. And as we were talking to her, it came out that she had been a convert. 
And she said when she was a little girl that she was told by her Protestant parents, and they had probably just heard it from someone else, right? That, um, that the Catholic priest would sleep with a bride on the wedding night. And so she's like, I don't want to be a Catholic. She was very, you know, and for good reason, right? If, if that's what you thought Catholics did, of course you wouldn't want to be a Catholic. So she had a false version of the Catholic Church presented to her. And, and the right thing to do in that case is to say, well, I don't want to be a Catholic. It was only later as an adult when she met actual Catholics and she realized that was all false, that then she embraced the fullness of the faith and became a very devout Catholic and, and died with the sacraments. Huh? So that can happen. So if that's the case, then again, God doesn't blame the person for things that they couldn't be responsible for. And he helps them to the degree that they're able to, to do what they can in their circumstances. Huh? Now, that does put us at a disadvantage. Obviously, if you're, if you're walking down a very um, dangerous you know, path on a cliff or something, and it's bright daylight, that makes things a lot easier than if it's dusk or if you've only got a little flashlight, right? The more light you have, the better your chances for staying on that straight and narrow path, which is Jesus says, it's straight and narrow. It's hard to get there to heaven. And so we want that superabundance of all the graces that we need. We need all the things that the church can help us with, the fullness of truth, the fullness of the faith, all the sacraments, right? Um, knowing about all the commandments and, and all the, the, the teaching and prayer that we need and so forth. So obviously that's going to be a better way, okay? Now then the last case of people are those who really did hear the gospel preached to them and they somehow rejected it. And that's possible in God's freedom, huh? And for those people, we pray for them because they're going to have to, Jesus says that it's not me, right? But it's the word within them that will condemn them on the last day. Right? And so we pray for those people that whatever obstacle they put in their heart, that Jesus will remove that obstacle. Huh? And that's our job, too, to help those members of the mystical body who are, um, who are separated right, from Christ, um, to bring them back into union with Christ. Um, and, um, and, and that's something that Jesus really desires. He desires us to pray for and to make sacrifices for those people. If you think about it, the, the the clearest case of that would have been the Pharisees in the scriptures. And we actually don't know the final end of any Pharisee except one, St. Paul. Um, St. Paul, uh, he had heard and he had rejected Jesus. And then what happens? God just came and converted him almost against his will. <laughs> it was an amazing instance. And then Paul became a great saint. So even those who out of pride and stubbornness, as St. Paul says, I was the foremost of sinners and God treated me mercifully on that account. Even those can be reached by God's grace. And therefore we never give up hope for anyone, but obviously those people need great prayers, especially if they've heard the gospel and have not yet embraced it or have rejected it. Sometimes I'm convinced that the real reason those people reject the gospel is because of something else. Either they saw the bad example of a priest or somebody who was a Catholic, or um, they have desires there, you know, they, they, they're seeking to, to um, fulfill themselves in the things of this world. And eventually what happens is they realize it's not making me happy. You know, you think that all the money is going to make you happy. You think the vacations, you think, you know, having all the things in this world that you, you can have. And eventually you look and you're like, no, this doesn't make me happy. And then God brings you to that place where you're free. I knew a woman 
who was baptized and became a Catholic at the age of 101. She had lived her life completely anti-Catholic and she had a granddaughter who was Catholic and her granddaughter asked me to come and speak to her. And um, her granddaughter said, you know that um, I, uh, that my grandmother has been having this recurring dream that she's invited to a party and she can't go. And so when I went to sit down and talk with the grandmother, I said, I hear you're having this dream. Tell me about it, she told me. And I said to her, well, the dream means that you're invited to heaven, but you can't go because you haven't been baptized yet. And she said, oh. Uh, and I said, would you like to be baptized? She said, that would be fine. <laughs> and then a priest came the next day. I was only a seminarian at the time. A priest came the next day and baptized and confirmed her. She went to mass once and received communion, and then she died a few weeks later. And that was that, you know? And, and you say to yourself, well, see how God took 101 years uh, to get there. And that's, that story is very interesting because the, at the time of her baptism, she said to her granddaughter, you know, my mother would be so happy. And her, grandmother, her, her granddaughter said, Granny, um, why do you say that? You've been anti-Catholic your whole life. She said, I know, but I never told you. My mother was a Catholic and my father was an atheist and he forbade us to practice the faith. And, um, and so here you have that long-suffering, you know, woman who 100 years after her daughter was born, came back to the Catholic Church there. So we never know whose prayers are helping who and, and when someone God will prepare um, to have all the means necessary for salvation. Eva, Sebastian. So we're having one, maybe one last little question okay. um, about digging into... Uh, when we're in heaven, fully, um, fully satisfied with the vision of God and fully happy, 100% happy, um, won't it make us sad to look down on earth and see maybe some people are talking about their, their children, grandchildren who have left the faith mm -hmm. and you know, that these very sad things that are the yes. reality of life here below. Yes. And when, while we are enjoying glory and beatitude, mm -hmm. How is it that, that those things which are so sad making <laughs> will still be part of our awareness of life there? Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, let me say two things about that. Um, the first thing is this. Um, in the scriptures, we find that on three occasions, it's recorded that Jesus raised someone from the dead. Now, on each occasion, it was at the prayers of an immediate family member that happened. So you have the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Naim, and the brother of Martha and Mary, Lazarus. So there you have father, daughter, mother, son, brother, sister, all the relationships in an immediate family there. So God, our Lord Jesus Christ, reserved his greatest miracles for the prayers of family members. And, um, and that tells us something. Just as God chose the family to be the natural instrument of bringing about natural life, he also has chosen the family to be the supreme or privileged instrument of also communicating supernatural life. So when God sees the prayers of someone, say someone has gone to heaven, right? I think about the, the, the mother of that 101-year-old lady. When someone has gone to heaven and they're praying for their family members, you can be sure that if they pray for faith, that God will give them what they need. It's an amazing thing, right? When's the last time you saw someone praying with faith and Jesus saying no? 
especially for a family member like that. Even in cases where he seems to say no, like there's a time when the Syrophoenician woman is praying, asking Jesus for her daughter, liberate her from the demon. The apostles say, make her go away. She's annoying us. And then Jesus says to her, you know, you know, I've only sent, was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she perseveres. And then he says, it's not right to give the, the food of the children, give it to the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table. And Jesus just is overcome by her faith. He just says, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to me. Be it done as you have, have requested. And her daughter was freed at that moment from that demon. So we know how Jesus hears the prayers made with faith for family members. We don't know if we're going to see it or we're not going to see it in this life, okay? But we do know that he always hears and answers prayers made with faith. So we shouldn't have any fear or any consternation. So that's the first thing. And God willing, we make it to heaven. We can pray for those who, um, who are still on earth that, that are lacking faith and lacking the charity that they need. And, um, and we can have great confidence that the Lord will hear our prayer for our children and our grandchildren. Um, the other thing is this. When we're in heaven, here's the truth. We don't love God for the sake of the gifts he gives us. We love the gifts he gives us for God's sake. And that's really important to see that. In other words, it's not that we look at God and we say, oh, I love you because you gave me my children or my spouse, or my family member. We say from heaven's perspective, I love my family member, I love my children for God's sake. And everything good about your family members was actually just God behind the veil peeking out and saying, this is me who loves you. When I was thinking about religious life myself, I remember having that dilemma. I'm gonna to have to give up a wife and children and the comforts of family life. And then at one occasion, I was thinking about it, and I realized, well, what would I love in my wife or my children? Well, everything that I would love about my wife and children would actually be from God. It would actually be God's goodness. There's nothing that's good in the world that, that didn't come from God. So it would actually be a pale reflection of God's goodness that I would have if I had a wife and children. And therefore, I know that if I give up those things voluntarily for the sake of Jesus, then in the next life, I'll have directly in God himself what corresponds to the origin of the goodness that we would have from a, from a wife, from children, for any other creature. So truth be told, we will love everything for God's sake in heaven. And therefore, the primary source of our joy, which can never be dampened, is going to be our experience immediately of God as a source of everything good, even all the goodness we find in all of our family members and how much we love them is really going to be derived from our love for God. And therefore, we can never have our joy dampened in heaven, even if we see evils happening to, um, to our family members on earth. So that's something else to keep in mind. Husband, it's, it's been a marvelous hour together. And there's so many, thank you for all your good questions, friends. I'm sorry we could only answer some of them. This webinar will be recorded. We'll be sure that you get the link to that so you can share it and, and maybe review it and listen again. It's a very rich time together. So could you conclude with a prayer, Father Sebastian? Yes, absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many, many blessings which you have showered upon us. We pray especially for those whom we love, our family members, our friends. May they all receive the fullness of the light of truth 
and have all the means necessary to get to heaven so that one day we may be we, we may be reunited in that heavenly glory and we pray together hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen as a little closing here that i wanted to, to, to mention um we know how difficult things are in the world today and we're trying our best here at saint michael's abbey and through the abbot circle um to really help we have uh, the, the real problems of the world are fundamentally spiritual they're not political they're not economic they're spiritual um, and we're doing our best here at saint michael's to help that we're, we're very blessed we have 34 young men in formation on the way to the priesthood and so um we ask you for your help and one way that you can do that is if you come and you join the abbot circle um you'll be able to have access to all the different content that we give um, and we'll be able to help you and you'll be able to help us as well by your support so we thank you for that and god bless everyone bye god bless bye-bye Thank you for listening to the Abbott Circle Podcast. If you enjoyed listening or were spiritually nourished, please leave a review to help our podcast grow. Thanks again. God bless you.